Welcome to Church Ahead, the weekly Christian podcast talking about big questions facing the future of church with Rev L all the way from the north of England. Episode 72. What class is God? As we zoom in on a tiny school-based Christian youth movement called Ewanminster. Class issues were an obvious part of my teenage evangelical world. The Crusaders boys' Bible class that lifted my faith when I was 14 took me into a very different educational landscape from the worst comprehensive school in Oldham. For the first time in my life, I was surrounded by young people who talked about A-levels and university, whose parents did good jobs, which was taken for granted as their destiny whereas my kindest uncle took me to one side when I was about 12 and told me that if I knuckled down at school, perhaps I could get an apprenticeship at 16 in the local engineering factory. Had I come to Crusaders 10 years earlier, then they would not have been interested in me because their mission was to grammar school boys. When I started going to Glenside Timpot Tabernacle Brethren Assembly, the very warm welcome was conditional. On my second Sunday, one of the elders took me to one side and explained that I needed to dress more appropriately for Christian fellowship than jeans and trainers. Did I take this as a rejection? No, I wanted to fit in. Did my mother take this as a judgmental put down on her family? No, she said, well, the religion might be a bit weird, but at least we finally got David to smarten up. So she bought me a Harris tweed jacket, formal press trousers, a collared shirt and a tweed tie, and black proper shoes, like we were officially supposed to wear at school, but no one did. I can still see that outfit now, all in beige and brown. And as I remember the scene, I can still smell the sour mustiness of the unheated men's toilet where I would go into to change out of my cycling kit into this outfit ready for Christian worship. And there was an immediate benefit to this new uniform of respectability. I was now taken by Mr Gray, one of the other elders, to Bible conventions in other brethren gatherings. The irony is that in the late 1970s, formality was now on the way out, so the middle-class kids from brethren families around me were collectively rebelling against their parents, first by dropping the tie and then the jacket, and they were dressing more casually. And so within 18 months, I was back to jeans and trainers. At Durham University... I could see there was a house style of appearance for a significant slice of the posher Christians. The boys wore brogue leather shoes, stripy shirts, good quality woolen jumpers, and at the extreme, perhaps a green waxed barber jacket. The girls wore frilly blouses, court shoes and pearls. At the time, there was a lot of talk about Sloan Rangers. The Durham nickname for them was Ras. And I assumed that what I was looking at was the general culture of people from private schools in the south of England. I wonder what Americans thought when they saw the immaculately dressed Italian heritage soldiers of organised crime in their big northeastern cities 
in the early 20th century. I suppose many of them would think, well, that's a natty suit. Look at the way his hat sits at that angle. I wonder why these people are always eating Italian food. It didn't take me long at Durham to work out there was some sort of posh Christian network with a huge influence on things. And this mafia had all sorts of funny little ways. I had quite a good room in college, and when the Christian Union said they wanted a base for the evangelistic Bible study that was going to net many souls for Christ, I offered them my gaff. Graham was an older postgraduate student. He was going to lead this thing. And so he came round to do his recce on the room. I suppose I assumed that he was coming to thank me for my generosity. I showed him how we could seat a group and how easily the refreshments would work. And then I paused, waiting for his glowing approval. But Graham, with a slightly military bearing and with the trademark clipped upper-class authority, said, No, the lighting is not quite right. What an extraordinary rejection. Welcome to Ewan Minster, the tiny school-based youth organisation shaping evangelical Christianity at all the top universities, at all the top London churches and just about everywhere else that matters to the higher orders of English society. What Graham was inadvertently introducing me to was Ewan Minster military discipline, focus on detail, high standards, obsessive commitment to getting things right, a way of life that organises everything around the priority of the gospel, quite narrowly defined, and no hesitation at all about rejecting anything or anyone who does not quite cut the mustard. This was my first brush with Eunminster, but certainly not the last. For the next couple of decades, many things in my life were shaped by the club I was never quite a member of. I could not have been because I did not go to the right school. I worked closely with these people. Many of my best friends were members of this club. It has a huge influence on the Christian world I moved in. Of the three vicars I worked for, two of them were Ewan Minster, no longer actively involved in the camps, but they'd been to them in their youth, and the stamp of this approach was still visible in middle age. The camps and house parties where I trained as a leader were run by Ewanminster people. For about 20 years, nearly everyone I worked with was either Ewanminster or, like me, trained by Ewanminster people. This network was everywhere that mattered. So what do I think of them? Were they any good? I want to tell you about Richard. Wavy black hair with a rugger nose, well-dressed in trademark cords and the leather shoes, signet ring on the little finger, well-spoken, naturally. Of course, he'd been head boy at Stowe School. He was the first Ewanminster man I worked with close up. In our second year at Durham, we were put in charge of DICU, the big university Christian union. Our executive committee was eight people, Richard was the president and I was the general secretary, organising the programme of talks. Now here is a thought experiment. Imagine a role reversal. What if I were the president of DICU and Richard 
had been the secretary. Now, to anyone who knows us, that would be for the birds. Richard was a very convincing president with all the qualities to lead an eight-person executive and an organisation of several hundred. I was nowhere near president material. So what would have happened if I were in the top job? Richard managed to get eight individuals with some pretty big egos to thrash out a common vision and work constructively together. If it had been me, we'd have got bogged down in theological dispute. He understood the dynamics of teamwork. When some of the more extreme members proposed an all-night prayer meeting just before the exams, he got us to see sense and scale the event down into something more manageable. I'd have been perfectly happy to try all sorts of stupid, wacky things. He was practical. He seemed to have a sense of what would work and what would end in tears with a level of judgment beyond his years. Boring and middle-aged then, was he? He was certainly more mature than most of us. Working with him sometimes felt like dealing with the chief executive of a FTSE 100 company. But no, he wasn't boring. He had much more sense of fun than me in those days. He got us to laugh at ourselves in a way that I was just too serious to pull off. If they'd put me in charge, it would have been a disaster at that age. It would be another decade before I would learn the sort of leadership skills that seemed to come effortlessly to Richard. So guess where he got it from. Yes, many Ewanminster camps, whilst at school and long afterwards, several times a year. And an active personal mentorship from people older than him and from him to those younger. Doubtless, he brought some good personality traits of his own. He would probably breathe in the soft skills of leadership at school. But the serious apprenticeship was at and through Ewanminster. You could sometimes see the cogs whirling round in his head as he struggled to apply the Ewanminster ways to, shall we say, a wider social setting. Sit up straight military discipline meets the more relaxed kumbaya, lie back with your mate Jesus, down with the kids sort of vibe. One totemic object, Richard's filofax, sometimes jarred with people who thought the spirit guides us more likely through the strumming of a guitar. How many hundreds of times have I seen this culture clash down the years? But Richard negotiated it well. He was a really good leader. He knew how to work with people. I remember one committee meeting where, frankly, I made a fool of myself, taking a particular hard line, too aggressive, making veiled threats, not leaving enough room for negotiation. I can't even remember what this routine squabble was about, but there was a bad atmosphere and the meeting ended with a sour mood. Now the point is how Richard handled it. In his summing up, instead of underlining the disagreement, he referenced the need for more work. And after the meeting, he stayed back to talk to me. He asked me how I was. He made sure he understood why I was so upset. And without backing me into a corner, gently made some suggestions about how I could extract myself out of the hole I dug myself into. All with sympathy and a lightness of touch. Now that's what I call 
good leadership. I would rate Richard's leadership ability higher than most of the diocesan bishops I have worked for. And this was when he was barely out of his teens. So yes, Ewan Minster is a mafia. But is it a criminal gang? Is it a crime against the kingdom of God? The most notable book in recent years about Ewan Minster is Andrew Greystone's Bleeding for Jesus, in which he tells the story of their most notorious abuse scandal. Andrew does a workmanlike job of telling this terrible tale of a Winchester barrister who spanks Yeominster boys bare bottoms in some misguided spiritual discipline, apparently for his own sexual gratification. But Andrew's conclusion of looking into this is that the Ewan network is not just one more Christian organisation that needs to brush up its safeguarding, but a fundamentally dangerous, irredeemably toxic sub-Christian cult. What was Minister is now called the Titus Trust, and Andrew calls for them to close down, not just because some of their eccentric ways are more conducive to abuse than the culture of socially humbler Christian groups, but because he sees an offensive heresy in their social selectivity, which he sees as perpetuating inequality and many other horrors in the Christian church. He sees an organisation effectively built on the belief that God only cares about the privileged. This is probably the biggest issue for us to chew over, and next week we'll make our assessment. But I'll tell you now that I am sceptical of Andrew's wrecking ball approach, because so many of the good things I've seen in church life can be traced back to this tiny group of people. So I would not be inclined to reach for the sledgehammer. And no, I can't buy that word cult. Certainly a tight-knit exclusive group. One of their less helpful funny ways is their tendency towards personality cult. They talk about their top preachers and leaders in almost messianic terms. And yes, that gives some of them too much power, a hold over people that can be abused. But no, not a cult. Just consider their response to this abuse. A cult would have justified the abusive behaviour of badly behaved leaders. These people did not normalise abuse. When they realised what was happening, they spat it out. When the Uminster body was infected by a virus, the antibodies fought back. Now that does not sound to me like a body that is fundamentally sick. Let's finish on a lighter note. Andrew's justification of the cult word talks quite a lot about their dress code, the pearls and brogues that both he and I would have laughed at walking up and down the Durham Bailey 40 years ago. But they've moved with the times. Their younger leaders now speak and dress much more anonymously. No longer do they wear the instantly recognisable uniform of the upper class. Which reminds me, I nearly forgot. Does anyone know where Charlie Scream went to school? Watch him on a video and see how normal his image is. Is this normality because he is genuinely middle class or because 
Upper-class Christian leaders have now learned how to blend in with the middles. I genuinely don't know. A final personal note. In my decades on the edge of this movement, never did any of them ever tell me how to dress or mind my manners. Not once. Not like the lower middle class 1970s brethren. And I don't remember anyone calling them a cult. Thank you for listening to episode 72. As we continue to get our teeth into Yerminster, next week I'm going to tell you a vicious lie.